Wither, Wither, by Horatius Bonar, Chapter 6 in the Booklet, How Shall I Go to God? In the beginning of the last century, an old American Christian died, leaving on his deathbed this message to his son, Remember that there is a long eternity. But this was not all. He laid upon his family the dying command that the same message should be handed down to the next generation, and from that to the next again, as long as any of his posterity remained. The command was obeyed. One generation after another received the solemn message, Remember, there is a long eternity. And the words, we are told, bore fruit in the conversion of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It is of this long eternity that God so often speaks to us in his book with the words everlasting, without end, forever and forever. It is of this long eternity that each deathbed speaks to us, each shroud, each coffin, each grave. It is of this long eternity that each closing and opening year speaks to us, pointing forward to the endless years which lie beyond the brief days of time, brief days which are hurrying us without slackening to the life or to the death which must be the issue of all things on earth. Of that eternity we may say that its years shall be as many as the leaves of the forest, or as the sands of the seashore, or as of the drops of the ocean, or as the stars of heaven, or as the blades of grass, or as the sparkles of dew all multiplied together. And who can reckon up these numbers, or conceive the prodigious sum, millions upon millions of ages? A traveler, some years ago, tells that in the room of a hotel where he lodged there was hung a large printed sheet with these solemn words. Know these things, O man, a God, a moment, an eternity. Surely it would be our wisdom to think on words like these, so brief, yet so full of meaning. Richard Baxter mentions the case of a minister of his day, the whole tone of whose life preaching was affected by the words which he heard when visiting a dying woman, who, often and vehemently, he says, did cry out on her deathbed, O oh, call time back again, call time back again, but the calling of time back again is as hopeless as the shortening of eternity. This inch of hasty time, as the noble preacher calls it, cannot be lengthened out, and if not improved or redeemed, is lost forever. While God lives, the soul must live, for in Him we live and move and have our being. Our eternal future is no dream nor fable. It will be as real as our past has been, nay, more so. Unbelief may try to persuade us that it is a shadow or a fancy, but it is not. It is infinitely and unutterably real, and the ages before us, as they come and go, will bring with them the realities in comparison with which all past realities will be as nothing. All things pertaining to us are becoming every day more real, and this increase of reality shall go on through the ages to come. Whither, whither? This is no idle question, and it is one to which every son of man ought to seek an immediate answer. Man was made that he might look into the long future, and this question is one which he ought to know how to put and how to answer. If he does not, there must be something sadly wrong about him, for God has not denied him the means of replying to it aright. Whither, whither, child of mortality, dost thou not know? Dost thou not care to know? Is it no concern of thine to discover what thy existence is to be and where thou art to spend eternity? Thy all is wrapped up in it. Dost thou not care? Whither, whither? Dost thou hate the question? Does it disturb thy repose and mar thy pleasures? Does it fret thy conscience and cast a shadow over life? Yet, whether thou hatest or lovest it, thou must one day be brought face to face with it. Thou shalt one day put it and answer it. Perhaps, when thou art putting it and trying to answer it, the judge may come, and the last trumpet sound. 
while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. Whither, whither? Ask the falling leaf. It says, I know not. Ask the restless wind. It says, I know not. Ask the foam upon the wave. It says, I know not. But man is none of these. He is bound to look into his prospects and to ascertain whither he is going. He is not a leaf or a cloud or a breeze, not knowing whence they come and whither they go. He knows that there is a future of some kind before him, and into that future he must ere long enter. What is it to be to him? That is the question. Whither, whither? Go to yon harbor where some score of vessels are lying, just preparing to start. Go up to the captain and ask, Whither bound? Will he answer, I know not. Go to yon railway station and ask the guard of the train, just moving off, whither bound? Will he say, I know not. No, these men have more wisdom than to go whither they know not, or to set out on a journey without concerning themselves about its end. Shall the children of time be able to answer such question as to their route and destination, and shall a child of eternity go on in the dark, heedless of the shadows into which he is passing, and resting his immortality upon a mere perchance? But can I get an answer to this question here? Can I secure my eternity while here on earth? And can I so know that I have secured it that I shall be able to say, I am on my way to the kingdom, let this present life be long or short, the eternal life is mine? The gospel which God has given us is that by which we are enabled to answer the question, Whither, whither? For it shows us the way to the kingdom, a way not far off but near, a way not inaccessible but most accessible, a way not costly but free, a way not for the good but for the evil, a way not hidden but plain and clear. The wayfaring man, though a fool, shall not err therein. He whom the Father has sent to be the Savior of the world says, I am the way. The knowledge of that way is everything to us, for he who knows it knows whither he is going, and he who knows it not knows not whither he is going. The right and sure answer to the question whither depends entirely on our true knowledge of the way, for the world is dark and can tell us nothing of the way, nor can it in the least enable us to answer the awful question, whither am I going with all these sins of mine and with a judgment day in prospect? and with the certainty that I must give an account of the deeds done in the body. In order then to get the answers to the question, we must come at once to the good news, the glad tidings which God has sent to us concerning him who died for our sins according to the scriptures, who was buried and rose again. It is the belief of this good news that connects us with him, and in so doing enables us to answer the question, Whither am I going? For if we are connected with him, then assuredly we are going where he has gone before us. By the belief of the gospel we are brought into possession of that everlasting life which he has secured for sinners by his death upon the cross, as the propitiation for sin. We knew one who, filled with dread of the unknown future, sought for years to get an answer to the question as to his own eternal prospects. He labored and prayed and strove, expecting that God would have pity upon his earnest efforts and give him what he sought. At the end of many long, weary years, he came to see that what he had been thus laboring to do in order to win God's favor, another had already done, and done far better than he could ever do. He saw that what he had been laboring for years to persuade God to give him might have been had at the very outset, simply by believing the good news that there was no need for all this long waiting and working and praying and that now, at last, by receiving the divine testimony to the person and work of the only begotten of the Father, 
he could count with certainty upon the favor of God to himself as one who had believed the record which God had given of his son. 1 John 5, 10-12 Thus believing, he entered into rest, the present rest of the soul, which is the result of a believed gospel, and the earnest of the future rest which remaineth for the people of God. To say to any sinner that he must answer that momentous question, Whither? and yet not tell him the divine provision made for his answering it would be only to mock him, but to call on him for an answer, while making known to him the grace of Christ and the open way to God, is to gladden his soul by showing how he may at once find the means of answering it without working or waiting or qualifying himself for securing the favor of God. To the troubled spirit we hold forth the free and immediate pardon which the gospel places in our hands, a pardon which no prayers or exertions of ours can make more free or more near, a pardon flowing directly from the finished propitiation of the cross, a pardon for the ungodly and the unworthy, a pardon which, while it glorifies him who pardons, brings immediate liberty and deliverance to the pardoned one. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified. Acts 13, 38 and 39. If justified, then we know our future as well as our present. For whom he justifies, them he also glorifies. Romans 8.30 It is all dark, said a dying young man who had trifled with the great question throughout life. I am awfully afraid, was the language of another in similar circumstances. I have provided for everything but death, said an old general as he was passing away. No mercy for me, was the death cry of one who in early life had promised well, but had gone utterly back. I'm dying, said another, and I don't know where I'm going. Such deathbeds are sorrowful indeed. Darkness overshadows them. No ray of hope brightens the gloom. But he who has accepted the great salvation is lifted above these fears and uncertainties. The light of the cross shines down upon him, and he looks into the vast future without alarm. I know whom I have believed, he says, and knowing him I know where I am going. I am going to spend an eternity with him. Whom, having not seen, I love. I am going to the city which hath foundations. And though worms may destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. The question, whither, has no terrors to him. He knows that all is well. Eternity is to him a word of joy. He has believed, and he is sure that his faith will not be put to shame. The simple word of the Son of God, He that believeth is not condemned suffices for him to rest upon in life and in death. The World Passeth Away by Horatius Bonar Chapter 7 in the Booklet How Shall I Go to God The things that are seen are temporal. Ours is a dying world, and here we have no continuing city. But a few years it may be less, and all things here are changed. But a few years it may be less. And the Lord shall have come, and the last trumpet shall have sounded, and the great sentence shall have been pronounced upon each of the sons of men. There is a world that passeth not away. It is fair and glorious. It is called the inheritance in light. It is bright with the love of God and with the joy of heaven. The Lamb is the light thereof. Its gates are of pearl. They are always open. And as we tell men of this wondrous city, we tell them to enter in. The book of Revelation tells us the story of earth's vanity. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. 
and the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. Revelation 18, verses 21 and 22. Such is the day that is coming on the world, and such is the doom overhanging earth, a doom dimly foreshadowed by the sad commercial disasters that have often sent sorrow into so many hearts and desolation into so many homes. An old minister, now two hundred years since, lay dying, his fourscore years well nigh completed. He had been tossed on many away from England to America, from America to England, again from England to America. At Boston he lay dying, full of faith and love. The evening before his death, as he lay all but speechless, his daughter asked him how it was with him. He lifted up his dying hands, and with dying lips simply said, Vanishing things, vanishing things. We repeat his solemn words, and pointing to the world with all the vanities on which vain man sets his heart, say, Vanishing things, the world passeth away, this is our message. Like a dream of night, we lie down to rest, we fall asleep, we dream, we awake at morn, and lo, all is fled that in our dreams seems so stable and so pleasant, so hastes the world away. O child of mortality, have you no brighter world beyond? Like the mist of the morning, the night brings down the mists upon the hills. The vapor covers the valleys, the sun rises, all has passed off. Hill and vale are clear, so the world passeth off and is seen no more. O oh man, will you embrace a world like this? Will you lie down upon a mist and say, This is my home? Like a shadow, there is nothing more unreal than a shadow. It has no substance, no being. It is dark, it is a figure, it has motion, that is all. Such is the world. O oh man, will you chase a shadow? What will a shadow do for you? Like a wave of the sea, it rises, falls, and is seen no more. Such is the history of a wave. Such is the story of the world. O oh man, will you make a wave your portion? Have you no better pillow on which to lay your wearied head than this? A poor world this for human heart to love for an immortal soul to be filled with. Like a rainbow, the sun that throws its colors on a cloud, and for a few minutes all is brilliant. But the cloud shifts, and the brilliance is all gone. Such is the world, with all its beauty and brightness, with all its honors and pleasures, with all its mirth and madness, with all its pomp and luxury, with all its revelry and riot, with all its hopes and flatteries, with all its love and laughter, with all its songs and splendor, with all its gems and gold. It vanishes and the cloud that knew the rainbow knows it no more. O oh man, is a passing world like this all that you have for an inheritance? Like a flower, beautiful, very beautiful, fragrant, very fragrant are the summer flowers, but they wither away. So fades the world from before our eyes, while we are looking at it and admiring it. Behold, it is gone! No trace is left of all its loveliness, but a little dust. O oh man, can you feed on flowers? Can you dote on that which is but for an hour? You were made for eternity, and only that which is eternal can be your portion or your resting place. The things that perish with the using only mock your longings. They cannot fill you, and even if they fill, they cannot abide. Mortality is written on all things here. Immortality belongs only to the world to come, to that new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Like a ship at sea, with all its sails set and a fresh breeze blowing, the vessel comes into sight, passes before our eyes in the distance, and then disappears. So comes, so goes, so vanishes away with this present world, with all that it contains. A few hours within sight, then gone. 
the wide sea over which it sailed as calm or as stormy as before, no trace anywhere of all the life or motion or beauty which was passing over it. O oh man, is that vanishing world thy only dwelling place? Are all thy treasures, thy hopes, thy joys laid up there? Where will all these be when thou goest down to the tomb? Or where wilt thou be when these things leave thee, and thou art stripped of all the inheritance which thou art ever to have for eternity? It is a poor heritage at best, and its short duration makes it poorer still. Oh, choose the better part, which shall not be taken from thee. Like a tent in the desert, they who have traveled over the Arabian sands know what this means. At sunset a little speck of white seems to rise out of the barren waste. It is a traveler's tent. At sunrise it disappears. Both it and its inhabitant are gone. The wilderness is as lonely as before. Such is the world. Today it shows itself. Tomorrow it disappears. O man, born of woman, is that thy stay and thy home? Wilt thou say of it, This is my rest, when we tell you that there is a rest, an everlasting rest remaining for the people of God? The world passeth away. This is the message from heaven. All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof as the flower of the field. The world passeth away, but God ever liveth. He is from everlasting to everlasting, the King eternal and immortal. The world passeth away, but man is immortal. Eternity lies before each son of Adam as the duration of his lifetime, in light or in darkness, forever, in joy or in sorrow, forever. The world passeth away. What then? This is the question that so deeply concerns man. If the world is to vanish away, and man is to live forever, of what importance is it to know where and what we are to be forever? A celebrated physician trying to cheer a desponding patient said to him, Treat life as a plaything. It is wretched counsel, for life is no plaything, and time is no child's toy to be flung away. Life here is the beginning of the life which has no end, and time is but the gateway of eternity. What then? Thou must, O man, make sure of a home in that world into which thou art so soon to pass. Thou must not pass out of this tent without making sure of the city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. When thou hast done this, thou canst lie down upon thy deathbed in peace. Till thou hast done this, thou canst neither live nor die in peace. One who had lived a worldly life at last lay down to die, and when about to pass away he uttered these terrible words, I am dying, and I do not know where I am going. Another in similar circumstances cried out, I am within an hour of eternity, and all is dark. O man of earth, it is time to awake. How can I make sure, you ask? God has long since answered that question, and his answer is recorded for all ages. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? I have never done anything else, you say. If that be really true, then as the Lord liveth, thou art a saved man. But is it really so? Has thy life been the life of a saved man? No, verily, it has been a life wholly given to vanity. Then as the Lord God of Israel liveth, and as thy soul liveth, thou hast not believed, and thou art not yet saved. Have I then no work to work in this great matter of my pardon? None. What work canst thou work? What work of thine can buy forgiveness or make thee fit for the divine favor? What work has God bidden thee work in order to obtain salvation? None. His word is very plain and easy to be understood. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, 
His faith is counted for righteousness. Romans 4, 5. There is but one work by which a man can be saved. That work is not thine, but the work of the Son of God. That work is finished, neither to be taken from nor added to, perfect through all ages, and presented by himself to you, that you may avail yourself of it and be saved. And is that work available for me just as I am? It is. God has brought it to your door, and your only way of honoring it is by accepting it for yourself and taking it as the one basis of your eternal hope. We honor the Father when we consent to be saved entirely by the finished work of His Son, and we honor the Son when we consent to take His one finished work in room of all our works, and we honor the Holy Spirit whose office is to glorify Christ when we hear what He saith to us concerning that work finished once for all upon the cross. Forgiveness is through the man Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God as well as Son of Man. This is our message. Forgiveness through the one work of sin-bearing which he accomplished for sinners upon the earth. Forgiveness to the worst and wickedest, to the farthest off from God whom this earth contains. Forgiveness of the largest, fullest, completest kind, without stint or exception or condition or the possibility of revocation. Forgiveness free and undeserved, free as the love of God free as the gift of his beloved son forgiveness ungrudged and unrestrained wholehearted and joyful as the forgiveness of the father falling on the neck of the prodigal forgiveness simply in believing for by him all that believe are justified from all things could salvation be made more free could forgiveness be brought nearer could god in any way more fully show his earnest desire that you should not be lost but saved that you should not die but live in the cross there is salvation, nowhere else. No failure of this world's hopes can quench the hope which it reveals. It shines brightest in the evil day, in the day of darkening prospects, of thickening sorrows, of heavy burdens, of pressing cares. When friends depart, when riches fly away, when disease oppresses us, when poverty knocks at our door, then the cross shines out and tells us of a light beyond this world's darkness, the light of Him who is the light of the world. But his impressions wore off, and he entered on a course of sin. It seemed as if he had broken loose from all bonds, and delighted only in what was evil. While in this impenitent state, he was thrown from a horse, and was in great danger, but his life was preserved. Then his conscience awoke once more, and he trembled at the thought of appearing before God, sinful and unready. Under this dread he forsook his sins for a while, and gave up his profane living and speaking. But the Reformation was only outward, and did not last long. At another time, dread of God's wrath overtook him, and he began to live, as he thought, a very religious life. He thought to make himself righteous, and so to win God's favor. He spent much time in reading the scriptures, he prayed, he fasted, he would hardly trust himself to speak, lest he should utter a vain or sinful word. Ignorant of God's righteousness, he was bent on having one of his own, by which he hoped to pacify his conscience, and to get quit of his fear of coming wrath. This state of mind lasted a year or two, and then he gave up religion altogether, and became an infidel. He now rushed into wickedness of every kind, and yet he only became more wretched. He went to sea on board a slave ship, and took part in that horrid trade. He was reduced to utter poverty, starving, and sinning, and blaspheming. His heart hard, and his conscience seared. He was in very deed the prodigal son, wasting his substance with riotous living, but not yet coming to himself, and saying, I will arise and go to my father. Once and again he was in peril of his life by sea and land. Half intoxicated and dancing on deck one midnight, his hat went overboard, 
and he was throwing himself after it, when laid hold of and dragged back by his comrades. Thus he hurried on in sin, as he himself in one of his hymns described it, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame and fear. Finding one day a religious book on board the vessel, he took it up, and looking into it, was led to ask the question, What if these things should be true? The thought terrified him, and he closed the book. He went to his hammock that night as usual, having contrived to put this solemn question out of his mind. In the dark night he was awakened by the dash of waves. A storm had risen, a terrible sea had swept over the vessel, and the cabin where he lay was fast filling. The cry rose up, The ship is sinking! All was confusion and terror. He twice made for the deck, but was met upon the ladder by the captain who bade him bring a knife. As he was returning for the knife, a man went up in his place and was washed away. Thoughts of other days began to come back upon him. The remembrance of those whom he had loved affected him, and his heart seemed softening. For four weeks the vessel was tossed to and fro, he being sometimes at the helm and sometimes at the pumps, the wave upon wave breaking over him. Then, in the midst of danger, day and night his cry went up, O oh God, save me, or I perish. And, The God of the Bible, forgive me for his son's sake. And, My mother's God, the God of mercy, have mercy upon me. That storm was to John Newton what the earthquake was to the jailer at Philippi. It brought him to his knees. It brought his sins before him. It brought before him his eternal ruin. It brought him to the cross and blood of Christ. The hymn of which we have already quoted the first two lines goes on to tell his experience. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame and fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. The new object which met his eye as he stood at the helm or walked the deck with the waves dashing over him was the crucified Christ. The cross and the Son of God there bearing our sins stood out before him in the brightness of divine love. For thus he sings, I saw one hanged on a tree, in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me, as near his cross I stood. As it was with Simon Peter when the Lord turned and looked upon him, so was it with John Newton. In both cases the look of love melted the sinner down. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to change me with his death. Though not a word he spoke. That look of love, holy love, went through and through his conscience, making him feel his sin in all its vileness, sin which had hitherto been treated by him as a mere trifle, or been altogether overlooked, now presented itself with all its terrors. He was doomed. He was lost. What shall he do? My conscience felt and owned the guilt, and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. He is overwhelmed. He is in despair. That look of holy love has smitten him through and through. It says to him, Thou art the man. Thou didst it all. Thou hast nailed me to the tree. Had it not been for thy sins, I had not been here. But as he looks, he sees something more in that look, and hears the voice of pardon coming from the cross. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die, that thou mayest live. This second look speaks of peace. He reads forgiveness in it, free forgiveness to the chief of sinners, forgiveness to the old African blasphemer, and his troubled conscience is pacified. I have found a ransom is the message which removes his terror, and this ransom is by the blood and death of the Son of God. 
That ransom suffices. God looks at it and is satisfied. He says, it is enough. The sinner looks at it and is satisfied. He says, it is enough. The burden of guilt is unloosed and falls from his shoulders. He is set free from guilt, from terror, from bondage. He knows the blessedness of the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. He has believed, and he is saved. Nay, he knows that he is saved, for he credits the heavenly record concerning him to whom he is looking. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon, too. Forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb, forgiveness through the belief of the Holy Spirit's testimony to the finished work of Emmanuel, this is now his resting place, and his whole life is changed. That holy pardon has made him a holy man. And now let us come back to the first thought that struck him. What if all this be true? Here is a question for us, no less than for him. If eternity be a reality, then it becomes me to prepare for it. For endless terror or endless joy can be no trifle. If I must live forever, then I must seek so to live here as to make that everlasting living a happy one. Otherwise it had been good for me that I had never been born. If sin be a fact, then I must not trifle with it, and if God hates it utterly, then I must hate it too, and I must get quit of it, and I must get quit of it in God's way, for no other way of deliverance will avail. That which is so awfully real and powerful as sin is can only be taken away by something as real and as powerful as itself. If the cross of Christ be true, then I must deal with it accordingly. It is meant to be the death of sin and the life of righteousness. It is meant to be the fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. It is meant to be the place where all sin is borne by another for us, so that we live by the death of another and are pardoned by the condemnation of another. My acceptance of the great work done there is my deliverance from wrath and sin and death. I am not bidden to work for pardon. I get it freely and without desert. I am not bidden to wait for pardon. I get it at once as the finished and provided gift bestowed upon every one who will go to God for it and take it in his appointed way. If these things be true, then I must be in earnest. Everything connected with God and Christ, with sin and pardon, with life and death, with wrath and favor, with time and eternity, is so unspeakably momentous that I must be up and minding these things without delay. If I am not in earnest, I am a fool. For what shall it profit me to gain the whole world and lose my soul? I must seek the right thing. I must seek it at the right time. I must seek it in the right way. I must go straight to God for all I want, and I must meet Him at the cross. I knew one who was all his life seeking, and yet he never seemed to find. He was trying to be happy, but knew not how. He was rich, and had everything that this world could give him. He went about from place to place in search of pleasure. He lived a long life and spent it in the midst of luxury, eating and drinking and making merry. He had broad lands, he had many friends, and his house was filled with pictures and statues of everything that art could provide for him. Yet his weary eye told you that he was not happy. Life seemed to have no joy in it, and yet every day, from morning to night, he was going about in quest of joy. Who will show me any good, was his cry. But the good never came. He passed through life weary and unhappy, though apparently possessing all its pleasures. He died about the age of fourscore, and he did not seem ever to have known a happy day. He lived in vain, both for himself and others. My friend, would you be happy? You must go to God for his love and joy. This world, with riches and pleasures to the full, will do nothing for you. What if it all be true? 
by Horatius Bonar. Chapter 8 of the booklet, How Shall I Go to God? John Newton had a pious mother, who was taken from him when he was only seven years old. She taught him, but when an infant, to pray, and sowed in his young heart the seeds of his future spiritual life. When a boy, he was led to think much of God and of eternal things, but his impressions wore off, and he entered on a course of sin. It seemed as if he had broken loose from all bonds, and delighted only in what was evil. While in this impenitent state, he was thrown from a horse, and was in great danger, but his life was preserved. Then his conscience awoke once more, and he trembled at the thought of appearing before God, sinful and unready. Under this dread he forsook his sins for a while, and gave up his profane living and speaking. But the Reformation was only outward, and did not last long. At another time, dread of God's wrath overtook him, and he began to live, as he thought, a very religious life. He thought to make himself righteous, and so to win God's favor. He spent much time in reading the scriptures, he prayed, he fasted, he would hardly trust himself to speak, lest he should utter a vain or sinful word. Ignorant of God's righteousness, he was bent on having one of his own, by which he hoped to pacify his conscience, and to get quit of his fear of coming wrath. This state of mind lasted a year or two, and then he gave up religion altogether, and became an infidel. He now rushed into wickedness of every kind, and yet he only became more wretched. He went to sea on board a slave ship, and took part in that horrid trade. He was reduced to utter poverty, starving and sinning and blaspheming. His heart hard, and his conscience seared. He was in very deed the prodigal son, wasting his substance with riotous living, but not yet coming to himself, and saying, I will arise and go to my father. Once and again he was in peril of his life by sea and land. Half intoxicated and dancing on deck one midnight, his hat went overboard, and he was throwing himself after it when laid hold of and dragged back by his comrades. Thus he hurried on in sin, as he himself in one of his hymns described it, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame and fear. Finding one day a religious book on board the vessel, he took it up, and looking into it, was led to ask the question, What if these things should be true? The thought terrified him, and he closed the book. He went to his hammock that night as usual, having contrived to put this solemn question out of his mind. In the dark night he was awakened by the dash of waves. A storm had risen, a terrible sea had swept over the vessel, and the cabin where he lay was fast filling. The cry rose up, The ship is sinking! All was confusion and terror. He twice made for the deck, but was met upon the ladder by the captain who bade him bring a knife. As he was returning for the knife, a man went up in his place and was washed away. Thoughts of other days began to come back upon him. The remembrance of those whom he had loved affected him, and his heart seemed softening. For four weeks the vessel was tossed to and fro, he being sometimes at the helm and sometimes at the pumps, the wave upon wave breaking over him. Then, in the midst of danger, day and night, his cry went up, O oh God, save me, or I perish. And, The God of the Bible, forgive me for his son's sake. And, my mother's God, the God of mercy, have mercy upon me. That storm was to John Newton what the earthquake was to the jailer at Philippi. It brought him to his knees. It brought his sins before him. It brought before him his eternal ruin. It brought him to the cross and blood of Christ. The hymn of which we have already quoted the first two lines goes on to tell his experience. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame and fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. The new object which met his eye as he stood at the helm or walked the deck with the waves dashing over him was the crucified Christ. 
the cross and the Son of God, there bearing our sins, stood out before him in the brightness of divine love. For thus he sings, I saw one hanged on a tree, in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me, as near his cross I stood. As it was with Simon Peter when the Lord turned and looked upon him, so was it with John Newton. In both cases the look of love melted the sinner down. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to change me with his death, though not a word he spoke. That look of love, holy love, went through and through his conscience, making him feel his sin in all its vileness. Sin, which had hitherto been treated by him as a mere trifle, or been altogether overlooked, now presented itself with all its terrors. He was doomed. He was lost. What shall he do? My conscience felt and owned the guilt, and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt, and helped to nail him there. He is overwhelmed, he is in despair. That look of holy love has smitten him through and through. It says to him, Thou art the man, thou didst it all, thou hast nailed me to the tree. Had it not been for thy sins, I had not been here. But as he looks, he sees something more in that look. And here's the voice of pardon coming from the cross. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die, that thou mayest live. This second look speaks of peace. He reads forgiveness in it. Free forgiveness to the chief of sinners. Forgiveness to the old African blasphemer. And his troubled conscience is pacified. I have found a ransom is the message which removes his terror, and this ransom is by the blood and death of the Son of God. That ransom suffices. God looks at it and is satisfied. He says, It is enough. The sinner looks at it and is satisfied. He says, It is enough. The burden of guilt is unloosed and falls from his shoulders. He is set free from guilt, from terror, from bondage. He knows the blessedness of the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. He has believed, and he is saved. Nay, he knows that he is saved, for he credits the heavenly record concerning him to whom he is looking. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon, too. Forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb, forgiveness through the belief of the Holy Spirit's testimony to the finished work of Emmanuel, this is now his resting place, and his whole life is changed. That holy pardon has made him a holy man. And now let us come back to the first thought that struck him. What if all this be true? Here is a question for us, no less than for him. If eternity be a reality, then it becomes me to prepare for it. For endless terror or endless joy can be no trifle. If I must live forever, then I must seek so to live here as to make that everlasting living a happy one. Otherwise it had been good for me that I had never been born. If sin be a fact, then I must not trifle with it, and if God hates it utterly, then I must hate it too, and I must get quit of it, and I must get quit of it in God's way, for no other way of deliverance will avail. That which is so awfully real and powerful as sin is, can only be taken away by something as real and as powerful as itself. If the cross of Christ be true, then I must deal with it accordingly. It is meant to be the death of sin and the life of righteousness. It is meant to be the fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. It is meant to be the place where all sin is borne by another for us, so that we live by the death of another and are pardoned by the condemnation of another. 
My acceptance of the great work done there is my deliverance from wrath and sin and death. I am not bidden to work for pardon. I get it freely and without desert. I am not bidden to wait for pardon. I get it at once as the finished and provided gift bestowed upon every one who will go to God for it and take it in his appointed way. If these things be true, then I must be in earnest. Everything connected with God and Christ, with sin and pardon, with life and death, with wrath and favor, with time and eternity, is so unspeakably momentous that I must be up and minding these things without delay. If I am not in earnest, I am a fool. For what shall it profit me to gain the whole world and lose my soul? I must seek the right thing. I must seek it at the right time. I must seek it in the right way. I must go straight to God for all I want, and I must meet Him at the cross. I knew one who was all his life seeking, and yet he never seemed to find. He was trying to be happy, but knew not how. He was rich, and had everything that this world could give him. He went about from place to place in search of pleasure. He lived a long life and spent it in the midst of luxury, eating and drinking and making merry. He had broad lands, he had many friends, and his house was filled with pictures and statues of everything that art could provide for him. Yet his weary eye told you that he was not happy. Life seemed to have no joy in it, and yet every day, from morning to night, he was going about in quest of joy. Who will show me any good, was his cry. But the good never came. He passed through life weary and unhappy, though apparently possessing all its pleasures. He died about the age of fourscore, and he did not seem ever to have known a happy day. He lived in vain, both for himself and others. My friend, would you be happy? You must go to God for his love and joy. This world, with riches and pleasures to the full, will do nothing for you. It cannot give you peace. But the God who made you can give you peace, his own satisfying peace. Go immediately, and get it from him. He giveth to all liberally, and upbraideth not. Would you be safe? You must seek your safety in the Son of God, and beneath the protection of his cross. In him only you are safe. His cross is a shield and a hiding place for time and eternity. Time will soon pass away, the last trumpet may soon sound, and you must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give account of the deeds done in the body. Seek immediate safety in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. He waits to welcome the guilty. He loves to bless the sinner. Go to him now and deal with him fully and fervently and honestly about that soul of yours. He will not send you away empty. The Ages to Come by Horatius Bonar Chapter 9 in the Booklet How Shall I Go to God The Ages to Come, what are they to be to me? How long are they to last? We pass into the new year asking these questions, for our days move on with speed. Our life is brief, its end is getting nearer and we sometimes seem to get a glimpse of the burying place where we may soon be laid, and almost to read our names upon the stone with the text beneath. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Psalm 103, 15 and 16 Very near has death come to us during the past year. Loud have been his knocks at our door, his trumpet has given no uncertain sound. Six hundred sleepers in one minute sink beneath the wave as the blast seizes one of our strongest war vessels and plunges it into the deep as if it were a child's toy. Some of these sleepers are ready, 
From their sinking vessel, the eternal lifeboat carried them at once to their desired haven, and the ship was at the land whither they went. John 6:21. For them that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. 1 Thessalonians 4:14. 4, Others might not be ready, and no time was left for them to prepare. Not even the brief time of common shipwreck, not even the few hours given to the thief upon the cross. Prepare then, O man, to meet thy God. The governor of Paris lately requested the German commander to give notice of the time when the bombardment of the joyous city would begin. The German refused. The warning is to be given. In an unexpected moment, when Paris is perhaps least expecting it, the circle of dormant fire will blaze out and the awful death shower commence. So, O man, shall it be with thee in vain thou askest for some warning, some intimation of thy coming foe. There shall no sign be given but the signs that are common to all, and these, perhaps, thou art at this moment slighting. It is never too late, indeed, to look to the brazen serpent, so long as the living eye can even dimly see the glorious healer. It is never too late to betake thyself with all thy sins to the gracious Son of the Highest, so long as thou art on this side of the deep gulf. It is never too late, whilst thou art here, to wash in the blood and to put on the righteousness, to receive the pardon, to drink the water of life. But how unlikely is it that they who have forgotten these things in life will remember them when the darkness of a dying hour is over them? How difficult, even if they remember, to deal with divine things, to realize the grace of the gospel, to apprehend the peace and healing of the cross amid the pain and weariness and weakness of their dissolving frame. The ancient heathens erected no altars to death amid their many altars to their gods, known or unknown. They knew the last enemy was inexorable. He would not be entreated. He would not be bribed. He would not spare. Make sure then, O man, of life beyond death, by believing in him who is life eternal. So shall death be transformed from an enemy to a friend. It is said that one of old, seeing an artist painting death as a skeleton with a huge iron scythe, said, Friend, should you not rather paint him as an angel with a golden key? To the man who knows not the cross and the forgiveness finished there, death must be the skeleton with a scythe. To the man who has found life and peace in believing the divine testimony to the great sin-bearer in his work, death is the angel with the golden key. Which of these is he to you, O fellow immortal? He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Is that your hope? Is that a text which you expect to place beneath your dying pillow? Or if you have no pillow but the heaving wave, or it may be the red turf of the battlefield, shall you be able to take such a text to rest upon when called hence, perhaps in a moment? to receive the eternal judgment? One old minister, passing away with these words upon his dying lips, I am full of the consolations of Christ. Another Christian breathed out her last with, safe under the shadow of his wing. Another spoke his inward feeling in the hour of death with, peace like a river. Melanchthon was asked when dying if he wanted anything. Nothing but heaven was his reply. Baxter was asked when about to depart how he was, and he answered, almost well. Grimshaw of Haworth, when asked the same question, replied, As happy as I can be on earth, and as sure of glory as if I were in it, I have nothing to do but to step from this bed into heaven. Dr. Judson said, Death cannot take me by surprise. I feel so strong in Christ. Another Christian died with these words on her lips. I never felt so near the Lord Jesus Christ as I do at this moment. Another once and again repeated the words, Death hath no sting. Christ hath taken it away. Another exclaimed, If this is the valley of the shadow of death, there is no darkness in it. It is all light. Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. 
To him who reads these pages, there may be but short time remaining. This year thou shalt die were the awful words that once came to a sinner from a prophet's lips. And though no prophet comes thus to sound his trumpet in your ears, it may not be the less true that this year may be your last on earth. Be it so or not, we speak to you as one who still liveth upon this earth, and to whom, therefore, in all its gracious plenty, the gospel comes. It speaks to you as a dying creature. It speaks to your undying soul. It speaks the words of grace, yet it urges you to make haste. It points to the open gate of the glorious city. Yet it says that in a moment that gate may be shut. It tells you of eternal life through him who died and rose again. It assures you that whosoever believeth is saved. That which makes up the good news for sinners God has most fully made known. We need not be at a loss to find out what is the gospel of the grace of God. In love he gave his Son as the bearer of our sins, as the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. In love he has written down for us the whole story of the life and death of this blessed sin-bearer. The Word was made flesh at Bethlehem. The Son of God there became very man, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. There he who knew no sin came under the burden of our sins, for sin is so evil and God is so just, and the law is so holy that either we must bear our own sins or another must bear them for us. They cannot pass unpunished. There must be a substitute if there is to be salvation. For thirty-three years the Son of the Blessed dwelt among us, speaking words of grace, doing deeds of mercy, revealing God to us, carrying out the great work of love and completing the great propitiation for sin. He went up to the cross as the sin-bearer. He went down to the grave as such. He arose again the third day as one who had done the whole work and who had been accepted by the Father as such. He was delivered for our offenses and rose again for our justification. He suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He hath made peace by the blood of his cross. All the perfection of Christ's person and work is now presented to the sinner that he may receive it and be saved. The gospel comes to him with the finished work of the substitute and presses that work on his acceptance, so that in simply taking it as God presents it, he may stand on a new footing, even that of the perfectness of Christ instead of his own imperfectness. Thus we press the treasures of the gospel on each reader of these lines. It speaks to you of the fullness of Christ and the open way of access for you, a sinner, to all that fullness. It bids you welcome to the mercy seat with all your worthlessness, it beckons you with eager hand of love to return to God and enter the city of refuge. It contains good news, the best tidings to the sons of men, and it sums up with, Only believe. The ages to come, perhaps the eyes of some mourner may rest on these lines. Cast your sorrow upon Jesus, who is your sorrow-bearer, as well as your sin-bearer, and look forward to that city of light where darkness cannot dwell, neither sorrow nor crying, and where tears are wiped from every eye. The days of thy morning shall be ended, the night shall pass away, and the morning star appear. Christian mourner, lean on the arm of your Lord, and pour your sorrows into his bosom. A lady, a missionary in Persia, was once teaching a class of inquiring natives. Worn out with the fatigues of a busy day, she could hardly sit erect. One of the converts, observing her weakness, placed herself behind her as a pillow, saying, Lean on me. The loving teacher leant a little, but was afraid of leaning too much. The same kind voice spoke out, If you love me, lean hard. O oh, sorrowful Christian, lean on Jesus. He says to you, If you love me, lean hard. The ages to come, how soon will they be here? 
with their untold riches of joy and song and brightness, they will soon be here with their happy reunions, their everlasting fellowships, their never-ending rest, their never-setting suns. They will soon be here, our labors done, our victory gained, our weariness at an end, our vexations and troubles gone like a dream of the night, our wounds all healed, our heartache soothed, our heaviness of spirit exchanged for heavenly buoyancy, our ignorance all forgotten in divine wisdom and knowledge, our hanging heads lifted up and our feeble knees made strong, our wrinkled foreheads smoothed by the same tender hand that wipes all tears from our eyes, all the imperfections of earth lost in the perfection of heaven. The arrival of all these things may be nearer than we think, for he that shall come will come and will not tarry. What manner of persons then ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Surely we are called to a higher style of Christian life than most of us are living. How much holier, more prayerful, more unworldly, more self-denying, more loving and spiritual ought all who name the name of Christ to be. We shall be like him when we shall see him as he is. Shall we not seek to be like him here? What makes us holy? Close intimacy with Jesus. What makes faith grow? Dealing much with Jesus. What fills us with joy? Looking into the face of Jesus. What keeps us steadfast? Leaning on the arm of Jesus. What comforts us in sorrow? Resting on the bosom of Jesus. For Christ is all and in all, and we have all in him. Let us seek to honor his fullness by receiving it fully and to enjoy his love. This is the end of this book. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.